welcome to a Duke of Edinburgh episode of the Play As It Lies podcast. Obviously, rest in peace, Prince Philip. Also, DMX, it's been a pretty sad pair of days here, but not not here on this podcast. Wouldn't you say, Frank? Yeah, definitely not here on this podcast, but you're right. I mean, rest in peace, Prince Philip, his highness. Rest in peace, DMX, also his highness. But you know, we're a little bit sad over here on my end. Uh, did suffer a broken finger just a few days ago, so that, that's a bit of a tough scene, but I'll be alright. I still got nine other figures intact. I know you still have all ten, as far as I'm aware, uh, and that's pretty much all you need to record a good podcast, so I think that uh, we're in good shape as far as that goes. Yeah, we're going to make sure to keep you on that rehab schedule, though. We'll need you back for the podcast playoffs uh, when they do come. We need that championship mentality that you bring with all ten fingers and toes. Absolutely, and old doctor said my timetable's about four weeks, but you know me. I'll, uh, I'll cut that down to a week, week and a half tops. We know you will. No one more dependable than Frank Placco out here. But injuries are not a problem just found on this podcast. They are currently taking the league ablaze. Uh, the most notable, of course, is the reigning champions, LeBron James. And Anthony Davis currently out for the Lakers as they maybe start a freefall towards the bottom of the West. Uh, and we obviously haven't talked about the NBA for a while. We probably our last episode was late February, right before the All-Star game. But here we are talking again as to who is taking up that space behind the Lakers. Uh, we talked about the Jazz quite a lot here, Frank, uh, the other episode. So we're moving on here to a team that I know you are incredibly excited to talk about. The Phoenix Suns, a team that you were very high on early in the season. And so let me, let me before I throw it over to you to, to talk about why they're doing so well, uh, throw over some crazy stats. As away underdogs, they are 5-1. and one. After a loss, they are 11-3. and three. With rest disadvantage, they are 7-2. and two. And with no rest at all on the second night of back-to-backs, they are 9-3. and three. They are a well-oiled machine that just keeps on winning and chugging and winning and chugging and winning. And the big question then is, Frank, how? What are they doing so special? Well, it's a long laundry list of, uh, of things that they're doing right. And the list of things that they're doing wrong is pretty much zero. I mean, some of those stats that you just read off, I think really uh, embody what this team has been all about. And they win in the areas that matter. They win when it matters most in the clutch situations, uh, facing adversity, and they're hard to score on. They're ranked top five in the NBA in defensive rating and a point in opponents points per game. Uh, they're not an elite offensive team, but they do rank top 10 um, in points per game overall. But I really think the difference is with this team is when it gets down to those nitty and gritty situations in the fourth quarter, and we saw this a couple games ago against the Utah Jazz in overtime, they have two players who, when the ball is in their hands, they can be borderline unstoppable at times. And obviously that's Chris Paul and Devin Booker, who are already at this point, one of the more formidable duos in the NBA. And that's the engine behind the team. And you combine that with, sound defense and sound all-around play from other players on the roster, as well as uh, borderline elite head coaching. And you have the makings of one of the best teams in the NBA. And that's what the 36-win Suns, who are second in the Western Conference right now, are. Yeah, and I think a lot of people expected this jump uh, with the condition of Chris Paul. But I think to this level, it it's... No way the way they leveled. You mentioned they're they're a top 10 team on defense and on offense efficiency-wise, number five net, and that is is an insane accommodation to to Chris Paul by himself uh, and even Monty Williams to how much he's changed that. But 
the thing is with this team is is the fact that they're this high and still the rest of their schedule they are the second easiest schedule for the rest of the way uh, after beating uh, the Jazz obviously the other night and they lost to the Clippers but they gave them a hell of a fight after going on quite a win streak uh, taking out teams like the Hawks the Rockets the Wizards uh, you know your lower tier team and there really is no end in sight here for the Suns as even if uh, a hard-fought Clippers team uh, can take them out, I don't see them losing that in a seven-game series because it really was a hard-nosed fight that took pretty much the best out of Paul George uh, to get the Clippers on the other end of the line. So now the Suns inching towards that number one seed, nervously sitting in that two seed, hoping that the Lakers don't lose enough games to drop down to seven. Uh, they are really the, the captains of their ship uh, going into the playoffs. They absolutely are. And since February 26th, the Suns have lost four times, which is impressive. And even if you're not doing the math on the top of your head, that's an insane number. Uh, and it speaks to the consistency uh, that they've been able to put together. And like you said, uh, they've beaten up some not so great teams like the Hornets and the Bulls and the Thunder. But that's the difference between a good team and a great team is that the great teams, they don't lay down and they don't play down to their competition. Uh, they handle those opponents that they're supposed to beat, and, it would, and they do so with flying colors, and that's what the Suns have done, and they're certainly building momentum, to say the least, uh, heading down the stretch, and there's still 20 to 25 games left, however many, uh, but I don't see this team slowing down, and you know, before the season, we were talking about whether or not they can get to 40 wins, and now we're talking about whether or not they're going to get to 50 wins, and based on how things are going, uh, that's probably the direction that I would lay my prediction down on. So then obviously the big question is, you know, we've spent quite a lot of time on the Jazz last episode. Do you envision this being a two-horse race now with the two LA teams kind of dawdling behind, especially with injuries? Uh, Paul, uh, Pat Bev obviously also joins the list of the LA injured now with uh, four weeks out to a fractured hand. Uh, do you think this is the Suns' opportunity to maybe jump over the Jazz or... Are you still seeing it as Jazz 1, Suns 2, or is it 1A, 1B for you? It's hard to say exactly. Uh, I think based on the totality of the season, it's fair to say the Jazz and Suns are at least a step ahead of the other teams in the West, but I wouldn't go as far as to rule out the Clippers and, and even the Nuggets, who we're going to talk about in a second, but you look at this clip, a team like the Clippers, who of course just beat the Suns, although it was on the second night of back-to-back after that Jazz game, uh, Clippers... 8-2 and two in their past 10 on a three-game winning streak, and obviously they're not going to have Patrick Beverly anymore, but they're building some momentum in their own right, and I don't think they should be counted out um, at all. Although I do think between the Suns and the Clippers, I-, I would definitely say Phoenix has the better chance of catching the Jazz for the first for the number one seat in the West, which, based on how the playoff standings are shaping up, that, that one seed, that difference between the number one seed and the number two seed, based on who the potential matchup is going to be, is uh, quite important, I would say. Yeah, and definitely not counting out the Clippers in any way. And if we do somehow end up with a Suns-Clippers, maybe a second-round matchup, I would be so excited to see Pat Bev and Chris Paul go at it every single night. Uh, and Chris Paul obviously has a little bit of disdain for his former team. Uh, and based on how he played last night, would love to see it. Uh, and that does lead us to what is potentially going to be one of the best playoffs we've ever seen, as seven of the eight teams that are making the West are all pretty much title contenders, and that now, I think, most certainly includes another team, which is the Denver Nuggets. 
The Nuggets were hot pretty much all season, uh, thanks to a Nikola Jokic career best season. Obviously, he's number one in MVP standings, which we'll get to later. Uh, but they've been incredibly boasted recently by one of the best offenses in the league. Uh, defense has not been their calling card, but number one on offense is is going to take you leagues and bounds far above everyone else. Uh, they're actually just inching out the Suns by about a 1.8 points per 100 possessions uh, and are on a seven-game win streak at the time of recording. Uh, Frank, we just talked about the Suns and the powerhouse and what Chris Paul and what Devin Booker does for them. These Nuggets are obviously being propelled by a sun at the center of their solar system, maybe a gold nugget, if you will, Nikola Jokic. Uh, we'll talk more about his MVP chances, but what a what an amazing offense in, uh, in Denver right now. 100%. And any adjective or... Or metaphor you want to use to describe Jokic right now, uh, it's probably not going to be doing him justice because he is having uh, just an otherworldly season, truly. And at the time of recording, you said they were on a seven-game win streak, but uh, they're up 13 on the Spurs right now at the end of the third quarter. So it looks like that's going to be an eight-game win streak, which is impressive because the Nuggets were kind of shaky, uh, subpar for their expectations uh, from for much of this season. I mean, after that performance in the bubble, uh, people thought the Nuggets were going to be one of the elite teams in the Western Conference. That didn't really manifest at first, but now we're seeing uh, the firepower of this team on display, night in and night out. And the concerns that we had with this team were going to be on the defensive end. We expected them to be an elite offense, but their offense was not elite for most of the season, and their defense was average to below average. Uh, their defense is still iffy, but now the offense is back to where we expected it to be and maybe even better than we expected it to be. And they're clicking at the right time, obviously, because they're propelling themselves in the up. They're propelling themselves towards the top of the Western Conference standings where like, a team like the Lakers is slipping and a team like the Nuggets is kind of filling that void. And uh, I, I don't see that changing anytime soon based on how they're playing. Yeah, and I think the most interesting thing about that, especially because we haven't done an episode since the trade deadline, now with the addition of Aaron Gordon, this offense just has such an interesting dimension that while Gary Harris, an incredibly talented guy, uh, just didn't bring. Gordon has been shooting incredibly well from three-point range, and he does bring that same firepower that Harris did. But now in a situation where Jokic, who loves the ball in the top of the paint, pretty much just collects it to whoever gets it, You've now got one of the most athletic freak dunkers in the game just cutting left and right and left and right. And all you watch him in a Nuggets game, it looks like he's burning off one million calories because he's just running and running and running. He is the Energizer Bunny on that team. And I think maybe in a full season, maybe next year he'll be running into injury concerns. But as of right now, I think you've got to have a Rudy Gobert back there to just be thinking about not even the best player on the team, which is crazy because... If you're uh, Mike Malone and, and you're planning for Jokic to do whatever he wants in the paint, score his nightly 30 points, and then you've got Jamal Murray, obviously, on the wing, the fact that teams probably have to put an entire man on the cutting ability of Aaron Gordon, notwithstanding the fact that he's shooting 45% from three-point range this season, uh, is just a game-breaking difference. Defense? Who cares about defense? It's 2021. I love defense, but come on. The, two best te- the best team in the league right now is the Brooklyn Nets, and they don't play a lick of defense. I think this offense could take them anywhere. Yeah, I mean, the time to worry about the defense will be later in the postseason. Right now, like you said, doesn't really matter. And that's a great point about Aaron Gordon. Uh, personally, I've never been a huge fan of Aaron Gordon throughout his career. I always thought he's been a little bit overrated, uh, 
Much of that probably due to his performances in the dunk contest, but now that he's out of Orlando, uh, his numbers aren't particularly better across the board than they were previously in his career, but he just fits perfectly in this Nuggets offense, and the chemistry between him and Jokic, which you touched on, uh, is remarkable. And like you said, his backward cutting ability, his slashing ability, combined with Jokic's floor floor vision and the fact that Jokic can see over everyone, uh, it, it's a matchup nightmare for other teams. And I guess the only concern with the Nuggets is, and this is probably more so in the postseason, is will they get the guard play that they need if they have to go up against a team with elite, with elite guards like the Suns or like the Trailblazers because it's really only Jamal Murray now. I mean, now that you traded Gary Harris, not really sure who fills that other void, and that's a lot of pressure to put on a young player in, in Jamal Murray. And obviously, he proved to be up to that task in the bubble, but uh, aside from that, uh, the fact that they have Jokic, Aaron Gordon, and Michael Porter as their three through five in the front court, that's pretty much unstoppable no matter who you have on the defensive end. Yeah, uh, the guard situation is currently a questionable one. They may be beating the Spurs at the moment, but they're starting guards. Or Faku Campazo, a, a rookie uh, who is not playing the most terrific game of his life, and Will Barton is currently playing at the two, and he might be a little bit of an oversized two, but he's also an incredibly slow two at that. So I think a Suns matchup would be pretty detrimental to them. But an interesting caveat to the fact that the West is just getting stronger and stronger because we just talked about two title contenders that don't even play in LA, nor did we mention the team at the top of the the Western Conference or pretty much two or three other teams we can throw in there. The West is about to be a bloodbath, and I cannot wait. No doubt. And before we move on to our next set of teams, we should mention some of the odds uh, for the Suns and Nuggets uh, the, the Western Conference odds to win the West. Uh, funny enough, the Nuggets are actually have better odds than the Suns do, or lower odds, I should say. They're plus 900, whereas the Suns are plus 1,400. Uh, do you think that's fair, Rotom, even though the Suns are a few games ahead of the Nuggets? I would think that that has more to do with the Nuggets being, I guess, a more known commodity as it pertains to postseason play. Yeah, I would absolutely say that. I think... The Suns' big draw, of course, is that defense along with Chris Paul. Chris Paul, as we know throughout his history, never really goes deep in the playoffs. And so I think there is that kind of stopping point where you've, you've, got, an inexper- you've got a relatively inexperienced head coach. You've got players not known to go deep in the playoff. You've got you know, a, a few too many non-experienced playmakers uh, from playoffs. Aside from really Chris Paul, you don't have many guys that have played in the playoffs, whereas the Nuggets just came off that Western Conference Finals. Uh, obviously, have played in quite a few before that. They they have made the playoffs. Uh, Mike Malone, a much more experienced coach than Monty Williams. Uh, and I think that is the entirety of that matchup because either one could be the two seed, either one could be the three seed. Honestly, the Suns could be the one seed. So I don't think it's the path that really becomes the problem. I think it's just who really, at the end of the day, could stop both L.A. teams in the same in the same playoffs. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And as far as division goes, uh, Suns minus 143 to win their division, which is crazy, considering that they're playing with both L.A. teams and the Warriors. If you had said that before the season, uh, you would have been looked at like a fool. And the Nuggets plus 2,500 to win their division, which obviously they'd have to catch the Jazz. Uh, not sure if you think that's feasible, that they could do. I personally don't see it happening, but plus 2,500, that's not entirely impossible, I suppose. 
I don't know. I think the Nuggets, while incredibly talented, I don't think they bring the team cohesion that comes with a team like the Jazz or the Suns. And on top of that, they're quite a few games behind with not too many games left. They are four away from the Suns and then a few more games on top of that behind the Jazz. Um, and there's still our growing pains, right? I think the big factor we talked about the Jazz all season is the fact that these are the same players over and over. Aaron Gordon has played less than 10 games as a Nugget, uh, and those guys we mentioned earlier with the guards need to start taking over their roles, and I think that's going to take a little bit of time, uh, which the Nuggets, in the regular season at least, don't really have. So I'm not I'm not buying the division odds. I'm also not buying the Suns division odds at the moment either. Um, I think just the fact that the Clippers are lurking like directly behind them uh, by six games it's not an inconceivable amount. I obviously just said the Nuggets maybe a little bit more, but I mean, it's Kawhi, it's Paul George. Uh, it's it's a team from the city of LA. I wouldn't count them out. And minus 143 is not giving you enough value for how talented the teams behind them are. Yeah, probably not enough value. Uh, you know, sometimes you just need a little bit of magic and things might go your way. Man, I wonder what that was supposed to set up. And uh, if you were looking for the answer to that question, well, we got to drop to our our teams that are dropping currently in stock, losing that value. And I think that there's no team that knows the definition of losing value than the Orlando Magic. A recap of their trade deadline, they lost their three best players, Nikola Vucevic, Aaron Gordon, the aforementioned, uh, and Evan Fournier. Uh, Vuce to the Bulls, Fournier to the Celtics, and Gordon to the Nuggets. Uh, In return, they managed to pick up three first-round picks, two second-rounders, a gigantic trade exception, Wendell Carter Jr., Otto Porter Jr., and Jeff Teague, who was subsequently released. Big day uh, for juniors in the area of Orlando, uh, but sadly not a good day for them to be winning games. Three and seven over the last ten games, including a current three-game losing streak. Uh, They are not only the 29th worst offense in the league, uh, they are also very close to a bottoming out on the defensive side. Magic, uh, last three years, probably uh, seven and eight seed, so they are blowing it up. Uh, How do you feel about that, Frank? Yeah, I mean, what you saw from Orlando at the trade deadline is a team that is waving the white flag, and a team that understands that they have a limited ceiling, and they're moving in a different direction, taking a temporary step back in order to potentially take a larger step forward sometime in the next few years. And it's a strategy that not everyone wants to do. Uh, Some teams are more hesitant to do it than others, but I like it for the Magic, because like you said, the past three, four years, they've been stuck in that same seven through nine seeded range in the Eastern Conference. And what has it gotten them? It's gotten them maybe one, one or two playoff wins every year, if that. And they recognized uh, where they were and they did what they needed to do to move towards a rebuild or towards a retool. Um, I guess the question is what they got back in exchange for their three best players, is that subsequent value? Did they get enough back? And I guess that leads into an interesting conversation, starting here with the Vucevic trade, uh, getting Wendell Carter, Otto Porter, and two first-round picks. In your eyes, Rodham, if you're the Magic GM, are you satisfied with that return? I think this trade really is a question of how bad the Bulls are about to be. If the Bulls find themselves as a late lottery team for both of these first-round picks, the first, of course, in 2021 this year, uh, and the next in 2023, um, if those are both lottery picks, I think what you've done is you've turned Nikola Vucevic into the potential that comes with Wendell Carter, 
whatever you can scrape out of Otto Porter Jr., who has already confirmed he would like to stay in Orlando and is probably going to resign uh, for a much smaller deal than his gigantic one that the Wizards handed him uh, four years ago. Uh, and then the question is, can you add a starter out of one of those two first-round picks? In my opinion, I like the Bulls. I like them to be a team that could maybe play in, play in games for both those seasons, but I think they're going to lose both of them. And I would rather take my chances in the lottery twice than watch as my 31-year-old Montenegrin big man uh, crumbles away uh, right outside of SeaWorld. You know? So in my opinion, I think this is a huge win. I think a lot of it rotates not around uh, I think a lot of it is also based on the fact that I'm I'm a Wendell Carter believer, uh, especially next to Mobamba, and they've got Jonathan Isaac. Hopefully, he's going to play a basketball game sooner or later because he is perennially hurt. Um, they've also got a few other great pieces coming in later from a few of these other trades. But I- I'm a big fan of this Vooch trade, uh, and I'm going to assume that you are still not. I think uh, as as an individual trade, uh, I question how they weren't able to get more back for. A 30-year-old all-star center in his prime that's putting up numbers uh, only a few other players in the NBA are. That being uh, in the mid-20s in points and in double-digit rebounds. And I just feel like if they had tried to trade him earlier, if they had traded him last year, uh, that they could have got more for him. And in that sense, I think it's, it has to be a little bit disappointing that you're losing a player of Vucevic's caliber. And in return... Uh, player-wise, you're not getting anyone even close to what Vucevic brought to the table. And obviously, Wendell Carter has some untapped upside, but I think even his ceiling is not going to be close to what Vucevic was. And Otto Porter, I could go on a rant if I wanted to about Otto Porter. I don't even count him as a plus in this trade because he's never on the court. He's always hurt. And at his best, he's an average 3 and D player. and I think you really have to look at this trade, I guess, in conjunction with the other two trades, because in totality, the trades make sense for the direction that the Maverick, that the Magic want to go in. And if they do hit on some of these draft picks, we could be looking back at this at the start of what could end up being a pretty impressive nucleus in Orlando. But if they don't hit on the draft picks, then we could be looking back at this at this trade deadline for Orlando and wondering uh, what could have been had they maybe moved earlier on trading some of these guys when their value was higher. Yeah, with that, I won't disagree with you. I definitely think timing-wise, they made the wrong decision, um, knowing that they got destroyed in the in the first round of the bubble uh, and didn't do all that much to protect their seating anyways. I don't, I don't know how they didn't see that one coming, but definitely Vooch, a sell-off should have happened last year. Uh, but quickly before we move on to our last team, uh, the other two trades... Uh, did net other parts of those nucleus you were talking about. More importantly, Aaron Gordon got them back Gary Harris and RJ Hampton, uh, which I think are nice pieces to go along with Markel Fultz, uh, who is supposed to come back next year. Uh, and obviously another first-round pick for Aaron Gordon. And then Evan Fournier, who who got them two second-round picks in a $17.5 million trade exception, uh, is probably one of the biggest takeaways, even more than some of these first-round picks, because $17.5 million is a crap ton of money. Who are you going to trade for that? Who's got the same timetable as everyone else you've got? It's kind of questioning, but the reports are they are pretty interested in John Collins and the Hawks' big power forwards uh, that could join the, the, the nucleus, and, and that would not be too bad of a situation. So at the end of the day, what you get out of all three of these trades, you might lose your top three players, but you've got the potential one to Carter. I won't name Otto Porter there. You've got those first-round picks, and if you can hit 
on one of the two first-round picks that you got this year, probably one top six, and the other one's probably going to be top 14, so just two in the lottery. If you get one of those guys, you're, you're already looking better than I think you were last year. And when you compare how Vooch is probably going to not be as good in three years and Fournier and Gordon, and your outlook to the future, I think, works. I'm not a big fan of any one of these trades individually, aside from the Vooch one. But at the end of the day, this is what you got to do to stay competitive in the NBA. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. The the Magic were were trimming fat at the trade deadline, and uh, as a result, they are now plus fifty thousand in their odds to win their division, win the Eastern Conference, and win the championship, which uh, speaks to just how bad this team is right now. So I am definitely selling any stock on the Magic for the rest of the season. Definitely for this season, we'll see them go out. I'm sure you're very excited to see them be one position ahead of the Wizards, as they always are, uh, this time in draft order. Always one step ahead of the Wizards. Always. They always know that uh, that Southeastern rivalry never cools down. Uh, but one rivalry that is starting to cool down is one that was in the Atlantic for years. The the Raptors and the Celtics uh, butted heads for quite a long time. With the Celtics going not too great this season, uh, their partners up north, or at least this year, down south, uh, have not been doing too great. Uh, the Toronto Raptors, or at least the Tampa Bay Raptors as we stay in the state of Florida, are uh, not doing too hot. Similar to the Magic, they are 3-7 and seven in their last games. Uh, they decided to not trade Kyle Lowry at the trade deadline, and Coach Nick Nurse is looking flummoxed uh, for answers for his team that used to be built on the bedrock of a phenomenal defense uh, that isn't even playing to that kind of level at the moment. They have defense. It's out there. They just don't have an offense to go along with it. Um, And I asked what's going on with the Magic last time, Frank, but I think the Raptors are even more of an enigma. This is the same team that started the season not too poorly, but yet here we are. Siakam, Boucher, Van Vliet, Lowry all still here, but this is a very different looking team at the moment. It definitely is, and it's been a roller coaster season for this Raptors team uh, in more ways than one. Obviously, uh, being displaced from Toronto having to play down to Tampa Bay, it's probably less than ideal. Uh, not a circumstance that most teams would want to have to deal with, but the Raptors are in an interesting spot, and you don't want to write off this core entirely too early, but it kind of feels like they've maxed out the potential of this group. And obviously they got the championship a couple years ago with Kawhi. They earned that championship. Of course, there were injuries along the way, but they won the title, and last year we saw them nearly get back to the Eastern Conference Finals and take the Celtics to Game 7, and it kind of feels like they squeezed all the juice that they had left out of this group in that Game 7, and obviously they fought down to the wire, but now, like you said, the same team really that began the season, and they're just kind of in a flux, and they're over-under to begin the year was right around 41-42 wins. We both took a slight under. But I don't think we would have foreseen them being 12 games under 500 about three three fourths of the way through the season, which is where they are. It's just not the same team that we've been accustomed to seeing, even though they have the same core and they still have one of the better coaches than Nick Nurse. But it's not peachy right now for the dinosaurs. Uh, it definitely isn't, and not just not just on the court, off the court. Uh, the the fight that they recently had. Uh, with Fred Van Vliet mm. and and Dennis Schroeder was was not a pretty one, and that is not what we usually see out of the Raptors, who are usually a little bit more mild mannered. 
in a personal opinion, Fred VanVleet had all the right to be upset there. Schroeder should not have been grabbing his leg. I don't know how Schroeder didn't get suspended for more than that. But also, DeAndre Bembry also was slapped with a one-game suspension on top of that for clearing the benches. So, I mean, this just this just doesn't feel like the usual Raptors team. Uh, so when I ask you here, you just, you know usually we follow it up with do we buy stock or do we sell stock here? No longer care about this season. When this team goes back to Toronto, uh, armed with what is looking like a top 10 draft pick this year, are you buying stock in this being a playoff team next year? Uh, and maybe not playoff because this league, the East is so top heavy. Is this a top six team uh, in the East next year? Uh, do you buy that? It's tough to say. And obviously that's looking a year ahead from now. And I would definitely buy them as as potentially getting back in the postseason. But Top six will really more so just depend on what happens with the rest of the Eastern Conference. But I think looking ahead, if you are the Raptors, maybe if Kyle Lowry moves on this offseason, you can kind of usher in the start uh, of a new era, even though you will still have a lot of the same pieces remaining from that championship team. But Kyle Lowry is kind of the linchpin in this team right now. Obviously, they were heavily considering trading him with the trade deadline. They held on to him. And he's kind of the last piece remaining from the old Raptors. And the new Raptors, what they look like without him, still going to be Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet, you presume, along with OG Ananobi and Chris Boucher. Shout out Bobby Boucher. And if you had a first-round pick, I still think this has the makings of, of a competitive playoff-caliber team next year. But right now, uh, I don't see them really climbing out of this hole that they've dug themselves, even though the Eastern Conference is incredibly weak. The Raptors find themselves in a play-in situation. Uh, I just don't think they have it this year to really sneak back into the postseason. Yeah, uh, and it's definitely interesting to see, excited to see this team back in Toronto because at this point, uh, Tampa Bay Raptors uh, are going to be easily forgettable. If they can get back into Toronto, you know, there's, there's tough border restrictions up there that, that Trudeau's got going on. Who knows? Maybe they, uh, they could be Tampa Bay Raptors forever. Well, Tampa Bay, city of champions at the moment for most other sports. Surprisingly, that did not affect the Raptors that much. You know, Tampa Bay home to quite a few other award winners. Uh, you know, us to our next question. Frank, uh, we only had four teams because there's a different conversation I think we wanted to focus on a little bit more. And that is the MVP. We talked about Jokic's Nuggets. We talked about Chris Paul and his sons. Uh, both contenders for the MVP award this year, though, Frank. Right now, who is your MVP? Well, in any other season, uh, at this point, with about 20-odd-some games left, I think we would both have a much better idea, but this is an MVP race unlike any other, and there's a handful of different reasons why that is. But to answer your question first, I would say Jokic is my MVP right now, and that's no surprise. Right now, he is the odds-on favorite at minus 150, but when you just look at the totality of the season, Jokic is really one of the only guys and maybe the only guy on this list other than someone like Damian Lillard who has one been on the court uh, regularly and consistently uh, with one team the same team and two has just been playing at an extremely high level night in night out I mean we talk about the kind of season that he's having but there's really not a lot of words that you can use to describe what he's doing I mean a near triple double uh, his shooting percentages uh, almost 60% shooting from the field, over 40% shooting from three, and in the mid-80s from the free throw line. And in any other season, maybe Jokic wouldn't be the favorite right now. Maybe he's just the favorite more so by default because of some injuries and influx 
to some of the other guys on the list, but I don't think he should be discredited for what he's doing. And to me, he would be my MVP if I had a gun to my head right now. Well, uh, to our viewers, don't worry. There is no gun to Frank's head. Uh, we are keeping him alive and well. Uh, but Jokic, it, it has been improving over and over. And you know, we talked about that win streak. Uh, no Jamal Murray uh, for quite a few of those games. Uh, and, and they have, and he has uh, 18 games a season of 25 points or more, along with 10 plus rebounds. Uh, and, and that is impressive with all, with all withstanding of how weird the season has been. And, and I think. There is one guy that is worth mentioning, and I think you excluded you you excluded him yourself from that list. But Damon Lillard currently third in the league uh, with twenty nine point two points per game, uh, seven point seven assists per game. I think deserves quite a lot of credit as well. And it's not like Jokic, who sure can win a game in the first three quarters. There's no one like Dame when it comes to Dame time. And as I've said before in this podcast, when it is Dame time and it's his decision to make it game time. He goes into Dame time. In fact, the Blazers, who have 27 games, finish in clutch situations, meaning that they are within five points with two minutes left in the game. Portland is 20-7 and seven in those games. If you get into a tight battle with Portland, more likely than not, you'll be seeing Dame Lillard wave away from you at the end of the game. And I think that while Jokic is a phenomenal player, I think there's there's just something missing from his his competitiveness for the MVP that I feel like we've had from the past few MVPs. Giannis was such an outspoken guy for those two, for those few MVPs. Harden, who brought that nastiness every single time. Obviously, the triple doubles with Russell Westbrook. I just think that just it just feels like after year after year after year of historically, statistically amazing, efficient basketball, uh, where every single time we have something to point at, Jokic just feels like he's missing something in that equation, and I think that could ultimately be his undoing. Uh, but I think the fact that we currently have odds that don't put him too far ahead of many other guys, he's currently sitting at minus 150. Um, Joel Embiid, the former front runner, is minus 450 right behind him. James Harden at 750. Giannis Antetokounmpo at 900. Dame and LeBron at, uh, at 1,200 each. Uh, Luka, the original front runner, was at 2,000. And then there's a few other guys like Kawhi and Steph Curry way behind them. So I think even if you truly believe, and obviously you already put down a very, very sound argument as to why Jokic... Uh, should be the MVP. The value isn't with them, and if I'm and, and if I'm being honest, I don't think any of the storylines will be by the end of the season. So maybe not directly with the gun against your head, but to the value, are you still going with Jokic, or are you seeing anyone else who might present a closer to the end of the race, maybe winner that we're not seeing, but but has value? Well, there's definitely some truth to what you said, and when you talk about there's something missing with Jokic every year. I think that is really just he's not a sexy player and he, he's not incredibly athletic. He doesn't make insane highlight dunks or step back three pointers. And sometimes that can hurt you in an MVP race. And I, I agree with you on what you said about Damian Lillard. And if you recall, uh, over a month ago when we did our last NBA stock report episode, I was the one who was saying that Lillard should be higher on the MVP list. And at the time, I think he was down at plus 2,000 or maybe even lower than that. And now he shot his way up into the top five. But I think in this totality of the season as a whole, Lillard has a strong argument. And I don't understand why he's not higher on this list. And obviously, the guys in front of him, Giannis, James Harden, and Bede, have strong cases of their own. But like you said, Lillard, the best clutch player easily in the entire NBA, and he navigated this Trailblazers team 
to, to winning 30 games at the moment, still being one of the top teams in the Western Conference, uh, despite not having C.J. McCollum for most of the year. And that's extremely commendable. But the issue here for Lillard, and I guess Jokic as well, is if you look at the past MVP winners, usually the prerequisite is that your team is a one, maybe a two seed in your conference. And really the only exception to that norm was Russell Westbrook a few years ago when he had when he obviously averaged a triple-double for the first time in years. So if you're not doing something historic and your team is not one of the best teams in their in the NBA, then it's hard for you to win MVP. And a guy like Jokic, who's the favorite, is having a great season, but I wouldn't go as far as to say it's historic in the in the scope of league history. And the same thing goes for Lillard. And the Nuggets are fourth in the West, and the Trailblazers are sixth in the West. So unless one of those teams catapults their way into the top three in the standings, uh, I don't know. If Jokic wins MVP and Nuggets are the fourth best team in the Western Conference, that would be breaking precedence as, a fo- as opposed to fitting in with the, with the trend for MVP winners. Well, with that, with that in mind, you know, I, I, the other guy that I was ready to talk about here was Giannis. But I, I guess you're, you're also putting a good point ahead of him that Giannis, who let's also not forget that my, he might be a back-to-back MVP winner, but could totally be a third. 28.8 points per game, 11.4 rebounds, 6.2 assists would be the only other NBA player aside from Oscar Robertson, to ever have a stat line better than that. Uh, and if voter fatigue didn't exist, I think he should be one of the top two guys. Uh, but, you know, to what you were saying with the top seeds, there's kind of a lack thereof, right? Because in the East, you've got the two top seeds, the Nets and the 76ers, and, and Joel Embiid is obviously the front runner, uh, used to be the front runner before quite a long run of injury. Uh, and then the Nets have kind of a split apart ways. James Harden is, is a front runner. He was... Up there on that list of plus seventy five, plus seven fifty. In my personal opinion, no way in, in any shape or form is he going to earn it uh, and or deserve it uh, after what happened in Houston. And I don't think the media will feel the same way. But in the West, you've got the Jazz, Suns, and Clippers. We've already talked quite a little bit about the Jazz, uh, the Suns, Jazz, and Clippers. Uh, but the Jazz don't really have a front runner. So from the Suns, Chris Paul for MVP. Charles Barkley said it the other night on TNT. How do you feel about that one? It's a long shot to say the least. And I think the undoing of that MVP case for Chris Paul for as good as he's been is one, he's not going to have the same numbers, obviously, as some of the other guys. Rarely will you ever see an MVP front runner averaging around 16 points a game. Two, he has another all-star caliber player on his team in Devin Booker. And three, of course, you have a a coach of the year uh, contender in Monty Williams, and maybe that hurts Chris Paul's case a little bit more. Maybe that hurts Chris Paul's case for MVP too. Um, But again, I love Chris Paul. And I'll say it again, the impact that he's had on the Suns team is worthy of being an MVP contention. And the fact that he's not even in the top eight of the odds list, I think is quite frankly disrespectful. And I love a guy like Kawhi Leonard. And I love a guy like Steph Curry. But I don't really see how they have stronger MVP candidacies than Chris Paul does right now. You, you, you can't talk me into that, considering that the Suns are the second best team in the West, the top five team in the NBA. And before Chris Paul came along, and of course, there's a lot of factors that have gone into their success, but pre-Chris Paul, they hadn't made the playoffs in years. And now we're talking about them as one of the better teams in the entire NBA. And that's really what Chris Paul does 
At every stop in his career, he elevates everyone around him, and he's done that with the Suns. And I think uh, I think it's worthy of a little bit more contention when the MVP conversation comes along. While I don't think he'll win, I think he's being slighted a little bit by not being ahead of some guys that he's behind. Yeah, and I don't think that there is any way to disagree with you on that one. I think that while we were talking about the very top, Jokic doesn't have that oomph. Uh, Chris Paul has that oomph, and more importantly, I think he has the V in MVP more than absolutely anyone else on the team. And I was saying that about uh, Joel Embiid earlier in the season. Uh, but obviously, the Sixers have been winning games, and if you took Chris Paul off the Suns team, are they even a 500 team at this point? Uh, sure, Monty Williams is doing a phenomenal job, and I know that a lot of other guys have stepped up. Dario Saric, Campaign, Cam Johnson, a lot of talented guys in this team, but are they anywhere near this talented that they are? without Chris Paul, and I think that throws into the question the, the great conversation about MVP. What value does that V have in MVP? And I don't think there's any player, aside from Chris Paul, that can truly bring the V uh, better than him. Yeah, there's something about a flying V that uh, that you love. But to flip the original question back at you, Rodham, if you had a gun to your head, who's your MVP right now? And to it, uh, it's Dame. It's Dame Dalla. It's Dame Time. Come on. I get, I get it with Jokic. I absolutely do get it with Jokic, and I think you're flat on right that just watching Jokic doesn't scream MVP. But you watch Dame Lillard turn on in a fourth quarter; it's chilling. You watch him make any sort of shot in the last two minutes, and the screaming that comes out of his mouth, and just the the the, the white faces of everyone on the opponent's bench. It is the effect that you want to come out of an MVP. And as much as I respect Jokic, and as love as and as much as I love seeing a European big man get that knowledge. With the dad bod. With the dad bod. Hey, I, I am as in shape as a potential NBA MVP, and I love that. But I hope it's Dame with all my heart. Yeah, I don't I don't disagree, like I said. I mean, I think Dame has a strong case. Um, but I think, I think somebody else that we should talk about a little bit is the guy who was the front runner up until a couple weeks ago, and that's Joel Embiid. And now he's second at plus 450. And really it sucks that he got injured and missed those 10 games because I I do think that Embiid was going not to run away with the MVP, but I think if he stayed healthy, that he was probably going to win. And now you could say it's kind of a long shot and that his case for MVP is slipping. However, at plus 450, it's not incredible value, but I wouldn't entirely rule out uh, a scenario in which Joel Joel Embiid works his way back over Jokic and ends up winning MVP. And the reason is the Sixers are still second in the Eastern Conference. They're only a game behind the Brooklyn Nets. And if the Sixers get the one seed and Embiid plays at the and Embiid begins to play at the level that he was earlier in the season and he finishes the year with somewhere close to 30 points, 12 rebounds and he's in the thick of that defensive player of the year conversation. It's not entirely inconceivable that the voters could favor a guy who, one, is a fan favorite. He's a highlight reel. He's a popular he's a popular player on the national scene. And he's never won an MVP before. So there could be some nostalgia there for Embiid. And he maybe that could edge him out over Jokic. Again, a lot has to go right. But I mentioned how MVPs generally in the history of the NBA are on are the best player on one of the top teams in their conference. And even though he's been injured, Embiid still fits that profile. And if the Sixers do get that one seed, uh, I think it's possible that he still could end up winning MVP. 
I do disagree with you. But it, but I think it's on the principle of your argument. I don't think that any of that is very likely to happen. And it's totally possible that all of that happens. I think that they're going to catch up to the Nets in any way, especially with KD potentially coming back. Uh, and only a game back. One game. Only one game. But, I mean, what is one game when you're talking about the most lethal offense we've seen probably in the last 40 years? And sure, the Philly has a then uh, sure the Sixers have a phenomenal defense, but uh, it's more to your second point about maybe being in the competition for Defensive Player of the Year. Not even the best defender on his own team. So uh, I'm not really sure how all of these stipulations, which I agree with you, if they do happen, make Embiid such a more talented and more complete package. I don't have a lot of faith in them happening, and I think that that's what cuts down Embiid on my list. And Embiid was my front runner pretty much every episode we've done so far. And I think the biggest nail in the coffin for him is the argument that I had up until our last episode. The Sixers hadn't won a game without Embiid since uh, until March 10th, which is pretty ridiculous. But since March 10th, when Joel Embiid got off the floor uh, and didn't come back until this month, they went seven and three, which doesn't bode well when your biggest argument is you were, as I was just talking about, the most valuable player on your team. Their defense got better. Their offense only dropped off by a little bit as Tobias Harris really picked up the pace. The the amount of value that it seemed that Joel Embiid was bringing in the first half was cohesion. And with the Sixers that were a little bit more cohesive, and granted, they didn't play the toughest schedule. They did end up beating the Lakers without AD. Uh, they played a pretty tough game against the Nuggets, but they did get edged out pretty late in the game. Uh, but I, it's it's a lot of dominoes that need to fall for him. And so far, I think his biggest argument of being the, the crux that which the Sixers have built at is kind of fading, and I think is even building more towards the Ben Simmons is 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 the more valuable player on the argument. But that is an argument I think we'll need to have another day. Here's the last thing I'll say about the MVP conversation, and this is an open-ended question that I'm that I'm giving back to you. If I had to put ten dollars on any of these players right now, based on the odds to win MVP, and not on my personal thinking, but thinking what could end up happening. And it pains me to say it. I feel like James Harden might be the best pick considering the value and considering all the factors that go into MVP. At plus 750, I wouldn't vote for him. And I don't think he should be considered as the front runner for MVP, obviously. But given that it's wide open, is it crazy to think that James Harden has done enough this season with the Brooklyn Nets to flip his image around to win MVP? Is that crazy? Because I don't think it is. I want it to be crazy. But I have a strange feeling that there's there's a chance that he could actually win this award. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's leading the league in assists at 25.2 points per game, 8.0 rebounds, 10.9 assists per game, and a surprising 1.2 steals per game. The current best player on the best team in the East deserves a shout. I mean, it, it is it is hard to look past the disaster in, in the Rockets and the fact that he is quite a few games down, but I think it, it, it very quickly becomes hard, especially if he's about to miss about three or four games uh, with a hamstring injury that he suffered on Tuesday. Um, Good point. Uh, it's it's going to be a lot tougher for him to really recover with the media in the first place, right? The, the numbers don't really matter at that point. If, if James Harden was averaging 32 points per game right now, I still don't think he'd be the favorite. And I think your more open-ended question was just, can the media recover? We're not quite the media. We're a part of the media, as, as we'd like. Media. You're my media. Hey, and you're my media, too. And, and as a joint media, 
I, 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 it has to be another season. I think I need to see a full season of him. I need to see KD on the floor. Um, but as a point, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't agree with you. I don't think I would put my $10, though it is entirely likely to happen because the numbers are there. The numbers are definitely there. I think to wrap it up, I think when it boils down to the MVP right now, as things currently stand, uh, the safe fallback option is Jokic at minus 150. The wild cards are probably Harden and Lillard, plus 750 for Harden, plus 1200 for Lillard. And then maybe another wild card could be someone like Luca, who we didn't talk about, at plus 2000. But it, there's a lot of factors that, are, that would still need to play out, and there's a lot of questions. And really, it's anyone's game as far as MVP goes right now. Pretty remar- it's pretty remarkable. It, it is. It may be the best MVP conversation we've had a long time. With only 20 games left, this is not what we're used to in the past few years of really figuring out who's MVP between a group of guys instead of just two or three. But we have spent quite a long time in this MVP conversation. There are a few more awards we need to talk about. So we're going to try and pick the awards, though. There are just a group of two or three guys. And I think the first one I want to hit on is Rookie of the Year, um, because I think it's a quick question, right? Uh, it, it's an easy one. Uh, with Anthony Edwards putting himself ahead now that LaMelo Ball is injured, I think who wins Rookie of the Year is going to decide on whether the voters think that LaMelo played enough games to matter. Frank, in your opinion, with LaMelo Ball currently at plus 230 and Anthony Edwards currently at even, and your boy Tyrese Halliburton right between them at minus 160, um, those are pretty much the only three candidates for Rookie of the Year. I'd like to give a shout-out to Manuel quickly and uh, the Knicks at 1,500. If if Thibodeau ever wanted to play him on the court, uh, maybe we'd see him higher. But it's a three-horse race, and really it's a two-horse race if you just need to decide. Did LaMelo play enough games? Is he Rookie of the Year already, or does Anthony Edwards have something to prove? Well, he he's my Rookie of the Year in my heart, and I hate the fact that LaMelo got hurt and he's out for the rest of the year. Really, I think that's maybe the most tragic storyline of the entire season because he was so fun to watch and he was having such an amazing season. Uh, but you, but putting that aside, I don't think that you can say he's good. That you can say he's Rook of the Year with only forty-one games under his belt, and there's precedence for this right over the past few years. Brogdon won MVP over Embiid because Embiid didn't play enough games. John Morant won MVP last year over Zion because Zion didn't play enough games. And although it's a shortened season, I don't think that changes enough based on what we've seen. Say that LaMelo with 41 games, 21 games as a starter, uh, should win Rookie of the Year. And it pains me to say that because I think he's the best rookie easily, but I think it's going to be Anthony Edwards who probably wins because the rest of the rookie class uh, is not all that inspiring. Even though I love Halliburton, even though I love Halliburton, I don't think he has a better case than Edwards right now. Well, I wouldn't say they're entirely not inspiring. I just think that the LaMelo Ball and, and Halliburton and Edwards have, have cleared themselves a little bit ahead. But the guys lower down the list, Wiseman, Williams, Bay, uh, Pokashevsky, who's had a great second half of the season, Desmond Bain, Foku, Foku Campazzo, Isaac Okoru. Teo Maldon. Yeah. It's, it's a great draft class, just not at the level of guys like Edwards and Ball and Halliburton, who is already a sixth man of the year nominee. Uh, so that, that definitely is an interesting take. I think I'm going to have to agree with you. I hate that that precedence is. I definitely agree that he deserved to win Rookie of the Year. Uh, but on the other side, you're right. I can't turn around and say that John Morant deserved the Rookie of the Year more than Zion, despite Zion being the better player through the six or seven games that he played. 
Uh, and and that is a hard truth. Uh, a nice little preview, though, into the Rookie of the Year. Let's let's jump into one more awards race. We'll see if we can fit another one in afterwards. But Defense Player of the Year uh, is the next award race we're looking at. Also, a little bit of two-horse race. Technically, it's a three-horse race, but kind of like Tyrese Halliburton. I'm a little bit confused if anyone really believes in the third guy. And that, of course, is Rudy Gobert, our current favorite at minus 190. Uh, the person that I think we both think uh, should be the other horse is Ben Simmons at plus 400. Miles Turner. At plus 360, somehow is the meat in that sandwich. He's leading the league in blocks, so good for him. But uh, Defensive Player of the Year, I don't think so. So between Rudy and Ben Simmons, I truly think it's a coin flip. What side of the coin is it flipping for you? Yeah, I mean, this is the same exact conversation that we had on the last NBA episode. And at the time, I was singing the praises of Ben Simmons, saying that I think he has a legitimate case to win the award over Gobert. I don't really think anything's changed. In fact, you might even say that his case has been strengthened by the fact that in the absence of Joel Embiid, the Sixers' defense really has not slipped uh, to the degree that everyone expected it would. And Simmons is still amongst the lead leaguers, the, still amongst the league leaders in steals, deflections, uh, loose balls, all of those nitty-gritty stats. Uh, while I think Gobert will probably end up winning, if you ask me right now, I still think Simmons has a legitimate case that should be heard. And it's a case that at plus 400, I like quite a bit. Yeah, it's a case that I think it's hard to look aside if you're just looking at Rudy Gobert and saying, uh, just hand him that award. I don't think it's it's as likely as it was, say, a month ago. Um, but I'm still, I'm still riding that Rudy Gobert train. I just think that, sure, if you give Ben Simmons, he's got the versatility. You can play him one through five. But if you're going position by position, I'd rather Gobert defend a center. I'd probably still rather Giannis defend a power forward. It's still rather quiet. I don't think he's the single best defender at any of those positions. The versatility that brings, uh, and, and that becomes a question, right? Simmons is the best player in the Sixer system. Rudy Gobert is the Jazz system. Uh, kind of hard to compare between the two. Uh, I'm still on that Rudy train. Value, of course, with Ben Simmons. And I think the fact that they are so far apart, I think it'd be un, be not wise to not be betting on Simmons right now to catch up in that race uh, to see if you can cash out. But another interesting 1v1 uh, that we kind of got to look at. Uh, Shout out to Miles Turner, too. Plus 360. You know, we didn't even we didn't even talk about him. Uh, He's second in the odds. He is second in the odds. Like I said, leading the league in blocks by by a substantial amount, quite a few rebounds. That Pacers defense is 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 top 10. It's something. It's something. It's there. I just, it's there. It exists. I don't know what Vegas knows that we don't, but I, Miles Turner is not winning Defensive Player of the Year. I, I would go and bet a million dollars that that isn't going to happen. Uh, Joel Embiid also is the fourth place guy, so maybe a little bit of Ben Simmons getting rocked out by his uh, his teammate there. Rock'em Sock'em. Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Frank, I think we do still have time for another award to drop into, and that is going to be Coach of the Year. Another award that we talked about last time for the Jazz. Uh, you know I'm on that Quinn Snyder train, but I believe that you are probably going to have an argument here for the number two guy at plus 350, Monty Williams. Schneider, Snyder is at minus 225. Third place is Steve Nash at 800, uh, which puts him pretty far away. Do you think Monty Williams comes back and takes over this thing, this award? Or is it just whoever wins the West wins the trophy? Yeah, it's simple to me. I think it's really whoever wins the West. Uh, I don't foresee a scenario in which uh, the Suns are second in the conference and they give it to Monty over Quinn Snyder if the Jazz are first. 
and vice versa. If the Suns beat out the Jazz for the one seed, uh, I would find it hard to believe that Quinn Snyder would get the award over Monty Williams. And personally, I think Monty has uh, a stronger case, maybe, all things considered. But at the same time, that the factor that Chris Paul has turned this team around, that notion uh, may be working against him uh, at that same maybe working against him, whereas Quinn Snyder, I'm not really sure what's working against him. Uh, but to summarize, whoever wins the West, I think that's who's going to win Coach of the Year. It's a two-horse race for me. Uh, yeah, you put a nice little bow on it. I'm still a little bit more partial to the Snyder system. Uh, big fan of that guy. I said it already last time. But yeah, a nice little bow on Coach of the Year. Frank, it takes even time for another award, if you would believe that. And I think this one doesn't really have a clear one or two. Uh, it's just a clear one, and uh, I'd just like to throw this in there. Six men of the year. Jordan Clarkson, my pick from the beginning, minus 1,430. Insane odds. Hope anyone who listened got in on that when I was talking about it at the beginning of the year. Uh, but yeah, let's get down to the final award then. Most improved player. The leading award guy pretty much since day one of the season has been Jeremy Grant, uh, followed by Christian Wood, but as of right now, there's a third runner in that race, and his name is All-Star Julius Randle. Just beat the Grizzlies about 10 minutes ago on a nice fadeaway two-pointer. Uh, so, Mr. Randle, now that he's an All-Star, has he made enough of an improvement, do you think, to outright take away this award from Grant or Wood? Grant has had a pretty slow March and late February, uh, and Wood is on probably the worst team in the league outside of Minnesota right now. So... Randall, is he your most improved player, or do you have maybe someone else who could be rising up boards? I think it has to be Randall right now. He's an all-star. Uh, he's gotten attention. He's gotten national media attention this year, more so than any of the, these other guys, rightly so. Uh, at Christian Wood not got injured and missed all those games, I think you'd have a much more compelling race right now, but I mean, it's exactly what we said with Jeremy Grant. We thought that he might slow down a little bit uh, based on the history of his NBA career. We thought that he might slow down a little bit as the season goes on, and that's kind of starting to happen. And Julius Randle has filled that vacuum for most improved player, and he's putting up triple doubles. And the Knicks are still winning games here and there. And in this year, I think that's going to be enough to win most improved player. I'd be surprised if somebody else... Uh, jumped him at number one in the pecking order. Uh, here's here's a guy for you that I'm surprised uh, that is so low. At plus 8,000, Chris Boucher. Uh, we talked about him earlier. He's played 48 games, exactly double that of Christian Wood. Uh, he's a pretty legitimate six-man-of-the-year contender as well. Uh, he's, I mean, one of the two good things going right now for the Raptors, a team that we just talked about is going pretty awfully. I mean, uh, the other day they had a game where he, he had 27 points, 8 rebounds, 3 blocks, uh, and then the day before that, 38 points and 19 boards himself. I mean, he might not be on the most star-studded team, but most improved player, if you're talking about two guys that play on the Rockets and the Pistons, uh, kind of surprised Boucher, plus 8,000 there. Yeah, Bobby Boucher, putting up big numbers. Uh, the other guy, real quick, Jokic, not to sing his praises again, but at plus 3,000, if Jokic doesn't win MVP, give him most improved player as a consolation prize. Even though he was already great before this year, uh, there's precedence for a great player uh, taking his numbers up in every category and winning most improved player the next year. And that's with Luka just a couple years ago. 
Luca was good his rookie year. He was fantastic the next year, and he finished in the top five of MVP voting. Uh, Jokic is going to finish in the top five MVP voting himself, and his numbers have been better across the board this year as opposed to last year. So plus 3,000. Uh, give me Jokic for MIP instead of MVP if it comes down to a consolation prize. Well, he can have MSP for me, most sexy person. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll get that going for there. Uh, you're my MSP. You're my MSP. Just so you know, uh, Frank. I would reiterate, but sadly, the viewers, the listeners, are my MSP. Yeah. So that's our awards rundown with just about a few games left to go. Uh, if you are looking for any more of our awards content, especially more NBA content or NFL content, don't worry. Mock draft number two coming to you soon. You can make sure to check out our Twitter and our Instagram at PlayItPod. You can check me out at Rodham Coffin. Uh, and Frank, where can the listeners come and find you for your newly found love of baseball picks? You can find me on Twitter at FrankJP0. And uh, one more thought for you, Rodham, before we head out. X, go and give it to you. Go and give it to you. X, go and give it to you. Go and give it to you.